0: Pastor David told me to have fun today, so I thought I'd start with just tossing out a beach ball and we'll just, no, we better not do that. I'm gonna date myself a little bit. Who remembers the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Okay, so we're all about the, okay, good, good. Remember when Butch and Sundance are up on the mountainside and they're looking down at the horsemen coming up after them and they turn to each other and goes, who are those guys? Well, you're probably thinking the same thing like that. Who is this guy? And what did he do with David? How come David's not here? Well, as I've been in the past, I'm one of the replacements today. Let your life speak. Is an old Quaker saying. Think about that for a moment. What does your life say? What is your life saying to others about you and as importantly, what's it saying to you? What is your life verifying to you about who you are? Each of us has a story. What's your story? Stories are how we've learned about our faith and about each other for ages. The Bible is full of stories. We've, we learn by these relationships with people. I think that's what we're looking for in life. That relationship where we look our friends in the eye and we learn about them. Now to tell one story, especially in a room like this, there's some risk in that. It requires a degree of trust between the speaker and the listener. So today I'm willing to take that risk and share my story. Everybody willing to come along? Okay, now the first thing, if you go to think about what's your life saying, I go to uh, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, and the first sentence in that book is pause for concern, because it says, it's not about you. Well, wait a minute, if it's my story, how come it's not about me? But as Christians, our story is really not about us, it's about God, right? So we each have a story that might be about us, but more about God and how God has worked through our lives. And that's the story I want to share with you today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that preaching, which has its roots in practical works, but also in the lives and experiences of the community is much more relevant. So with that, I like to take a look back. I've found it to be very helpful to look back over my life, and just see how while I maybe didn't realize it at the time, God was in the middle of it. God was there all the time, even the times when I drifted a bit. We're all searching for that relationship and that meaningfulness, but sometimes we put up walls. We don't want people to get in. We don't want people let people get too close. It's hard to have that conversation. Maybe it's over a cup of coffee, you can start to just nibble away at that conversation, but it's hard to do that. Now, I say that, but on the other hand, look at what we do on social media. Don't we kind of share everything sometimes? We think we're more connected in this 24-7 electronic world where we have our handheld computer that happens to be a wireless radio that we carry around, and, and we talk to each other on that, usually by typing. Does anybody talk anymore? I I I saw a a statistic one time where if you call somebody, there's like a 30% chance they're going to pick up the phone, they're going to let it go to voicemail. But if you send them a text, there's about a 60% chance they're going to respond. It's easier to text. Well, today, I'm not going to text. There's no wall. I'm not going to put a Facebook post out there. This is just between us. This is me. I'm an average guy. I'm a deeply flawed man, blessed by God's grace, love, and forgiveness. I could probably stop right there, and that's not a bad little sermon. But there's a little more to the story, but let's have a prayer first. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to thee, O Lord our God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, if you're going to tell your story, you've got to get comfortable so I'm going to try this. Tim said he often thought about doing this, but I'd rather just sit down and tell a story. I grew up in a small town in eastern South Dakota, not unlike dozens of small farming communities in the Midwest. Three stoplights, grain elevators down by the railroad track, no McDonald's. We had to drive all the way to the big town in Sioux Falls to find a McDonald's. I grew up a, uh, we did have, by the way, we had a Dairy Queen that was, uh, a, had a walk-up window, but it was only open in the summertime. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, there's a picture of the family. I have a brother, a younger brother. Maybe you can tell who the guy is that's given the goofy face. Younger brother and three sisters went to church and Sunday school at the Methodist Church right there in town. The Methodist Church had that location on the corner of the State Highway through the town and the Main Street. So there was the Methodist Church, started in 1877 in this little town. My father held many different roles in the church, uh, from chair of the trustees to head usher. One day in junior high, I got really bored with Sunday school, and he said, no problem, if you're bored with Sunday school, you're going to usher. So I ushered. Don't tell Roger Jones, but I've been ushering since about seventh grade, okay? Back in those days, we walked people down the aisle and handed them to the bulletin as they moved into the aisle, a little bit different than we do it today. My mom was very much involved with the church. She didn't drive, though. She walked everywhere. She'd walk to the grocery store. She even walked to this thing she called a circle meeting at the church, and I often, what is a circle meeting? Who sits around in circles? But my mom would would go to the church for circle meetings and always walk. My father owned a small family business called a locker plant. Now I won't go into details about a locker plant, but let me just say, I know how sausage is made. I worked for my dad from probably about age 10 uh, when I started sweeping floors, and he'd pay me a nickel. And I worked all the way through high school, and and before I left to join the Navy, I was his chief butcher. He wanted me to take over that family business, but I had a different idea. I was an avid reader, and I'd read about the world beyond South Dakota, and I knew there was something out there. So I joined the Navy to see the world. I've seen the world from a P-3 aircraft. It's mostly water, but I've seen it. There's a shot of one of the most beautiful airplanes in the world, and uh, it got me home many a time. little story about a P-3. Uh, P-3's flying straight and level, and up comes a fighter plane, right alongside, talking on the radio, and the fighter pilot says, hey, watch this, and he puts the throttles forward and takes off and does a bunch of rolls and turns and all this kind of stuff, and swings back around and comes up alongside the P-3 again. P-3 pilot says, hey, watch this and the P-3 pilot, the aircraft just stays, mainta- maintained straight and level. And a few minutes later, he said, what would you think of that? The jet pilot said, well, what did you do? Well, I got up, I went to the back, I went to the bathroom, got a cup of coffee and came back. So that was what I liked about the P-3. <laughs> My draft number of the year I graduated from high school was 11. Vietnam was still in full force, and I thought, well, I will beat the draft, so I enlisted in the Navy. I was 17. I went off to uh, the Navy's Nuclear Power School, and after Nuclear Power School and the nuclear power prototype out in the deserts of Idaho, I was selected to go to school to get my engineering degree. The Navy sent me to school and said, here, here's your duty station. Go and get a degree. The drift kind of started then. The foundation that had been laid as a kid in church, I kind of drifted away from that. Sometimes we drift. I should have known what that drift was, but I was too busy doing things. Just before my senior year, I met my my wife, Cindy, on a blind date, 44 years ago, last month. My parents met Cindy six months later, the day before we got married. So here's a, here's a young Navy guy in college marrying this woman that my parents hadn't even met. And she, had, by the way, had two kids. My dad took me aside that evening. That was a little dinner thing, what we would call today a rehearsal dinner. We didn't have much of a rehearsal because it wasn't a big wedding. Our best friends stood up with us, and that was the ceremony in a church. But my dad took me aside and somewhat laughingly said, you're either the dumbest guy I know, or you're the bravest guy I know. And the jury's still out on that. But after 44 years, I think the bravest person I know is my wife. I have hundreds of favorite pictures of my wife, but this is one of the top. This was taken a few years later. My role in this marriage is to, was to bring Cindy Metty to events. Because that's what I did. And uh, that picture tells a lot about my wife and who she is. This young family, instant family, 22-year-old guy with an instant family, Graduate, we graduated, I was commissioned as a Navy officer, and off we went to Pensacola for flight training and Corpus Christi, and eventually to a P3 squadron at, at Moffett Field, California in the Bay Area. The drift was subtle. I should have seen it. Three things happened in my life where God, I think, was trying to get my attention as I look back, the first of which was in 1978, we were deployed to Adak, Alaska, in the Aleutian chain. If you've ever heard of Adak, it's also known as the birthplace of the wind, and there's a reason for that. But we were tracking Soviet submarines, and uh, that's why we went to Adak. We used to fly right off the coast of the Soviet Union. They claimed 200 miles, but we said, no, the International is 12 miles. So we flew there because we could. Now, it was a special flight, it took a lot of special navigation and communications to, to make sure we were all safe. I was an instructor-navigator-communications officer at the time. There were two of us at ADAC at, during that, that point, and any time a new navigator flew on one of these flights, one of us would always go with him. So the next day was going to be one of these flights, and we flipped a coin, and my friend went on the flight, and I decided I was, my crew was going to take what's called the Ready Alert to be able to launch within an hour the next day, on whatever reason. Little did I know that the next day that aircraft with an instructor navigator and a brand-new navigator and 14 other men would have to ditch at sea. It's a big airplane. This happens to be the book cover, or some book cover art, from a book that was written about that event. The number-one engine, which is the one there that's trailing smoke, uh, caught fire and they couldn't get the fire out. And they were too far away from anything to land. So they had to put that aircraft in the water. Anybody ever seen the the show uh, The Deadliest Catch? It kind of takes place in the northern Pacific and the Bering Sea, and that's where we were. Picture that water and putting that airplane down with 15 men on board. It's amazing the aircraft even stayed afloat, but it did for 90 seconds. Of the 15 men on board, 13 got out. And those 13 men survived in open life rafts for 12 hours in 40 degree water and 10 to 15 foot seas and rain and cold until my aircraft, we were the search and rescue aircraft, was able to vector in a Russian commercial fishing ship that picked them up. They were, of the 13 men in the raft, 10 survived, but they were all suffering from severe hypothermia. After that event, we had a memorial service in the squadron, but we just we kept on going. You know, today's Scripture talked about the lost sheep and how we think about the, the shepherd will, will go after that lost sheep, right? But look at it from the sheep's perspective. What if the sheep doesn't realize he's lost? I didn't realize I was lost. I actually was, during this time, I, I say I was, I was living a Tom Clancy novel before Tom Clancy even wrote his first book. I was having a lot of fun. But that day, after that memorial service we just kept going. What if the sheep doesn't realize he's lost? The second event happened a couple years later. God was trying to get my attention, but I was too busy. I was diagnosed with a tumor in my lung. I'm saying, "Wait a minute. I'm a young guy. I'm this dashing navy officer. I'm I'm a, I'm a goofy-looking guy." The reason I like that picture, not because of it, but on the, on the wall next to it, it says, was kind of how I lived my life. There was a pilot, naval flight officer thing. It says, pilots simply fly the plane, the naval flight officers run it. And that's what I did. I ran the aircraft, so it was always my aircraft when we were hunting the submarine. They just took off and landed. But being diagnosed with a tumor at age 27, I said, holy cow, I'm a non-smoker? How could this happen? This wasn't supposed to happen. So I had what's called a right middle lobe thoracotomy, for those of you with the medical jargon. The only people that came to visit me, because I didn't have a church family, I had drifted, were my wife and one fellow naval officer. I was there for nine days recuperating from that surgery. I was grounded for a year, didn't figure I'd ever fly again. What if the sheep doesn't know he's lost? The third event came after we'd been in the Philippines for two years. We moved back to Moffett Field, and I was back in the same, kind of a similar job that I'd had before, working in the flight simulators. I was with my best friend, who was a civilian maintenance manager for the flight simulators, in his office one day, and he had a heart attack. Now, when you're doing CPR on your best friend, you're on your knees, and your best friend dies, you realize you're lost. That moment for me, that realization is what John Wesley would call a moment of justifying grace. I turned and God was there. He'd been waiting for me, trying to get my attention for all those years. Now it's amazing what happens when you turn back oh, life doesn't become all rainbows and lollipops. There's still tons of challenges, and yet I felt like there was a a significant shift in my life. I started to walk that path that John Wesley would describe as sanctifying grace. We joined a church in Cupertino, California. The first morning we were there, the person that greeted me was that same Navy Navy officer who had been to the hospital to see me. I didn't even know he went to that church. Cindy became Sunday School Superintendent, and one day she's sitting in the kitchen going, I think I need a third and fourth grade Sunday School teacher for Saturday, and I have no idea who it was going to be. And I walked into the kitchen, and she said, I know who it's going to be. So I started teaching third and fourth grade Sunday School. I taught that for 15 years. I shared my stories, Bible stories, had a lot of fun. After the Navy, I worked in the Silicon Valley in high tech for almost 14 years, and after that many years of 60- to 80-hour weeks, and I was in Asia 8- to 10 times a year. My doctor suggested I change careers. He said, this is probably not a healthy way to live, all this kind of work. I had a friend who lived in Henderson. He said, come to Las Vegas. Las Vegas? Who would, Doesn't everybody live on the Strip? I don't want to live on the Strip. But we moved to Las Vegas. God's hand was in that. I didn't know why, but God said go to Las Vegas. We found this church the evening before we were going to meet with the realtor the next morning. I can still see Cindy looking in a window over there, the office window going, I wonder if they have a UMW group here. And those of you who know Cindy know she found that answer. A couple weeks after we joined the church, I was sitting in the other, other room, other building over there. Reverend Phil Nelson. Tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, I heard you used to teach Sunday school in California. And that's one of those red flag moments. It's like, <laughs> and uh, she said, We need a junior high teacher. We can't seem to keep one. So I started teaching junior high. Taught junior high for 10 years here. If you want to have one of the most amazing experiences of your life, go teach that age group. They're looking for people who can be mentors and show them the boundaries. I had a lot of fun. To this day, sometimes you might see me in the back as I greet some people who had been in my class over the years. I found that anatomically I've changed. My heart now is kind of right here sometimes. And when I get the greeting, a secret greeting that we had, it's a Tibetan greeting from from one of the kids or now one of the young adults. My heart You'll see me pick over to pick my heart back up or lean over to pick my heart. I wondered why God has sent me here. I figured, okay, it's to be a junior high Sunday school teacher. That's what he needed. That was okay for me. But then about seven years ago, Gene Akers asked me to consider Stephen Ministry. And I said, whoa, not me. I mean, that's that's for other kind of people. I don't really have time for that. I was working in the sound booth. I was teaching junior high. I figured, isn't that what God wanted me to do? And yet when God wants you to do something, he keeps putting reminders in your way. So for a couple years, Gene and others would continue to invite me to become a Stephen minister. I finally went to the class, took the class, and it was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. I learned so much about how to better interact with people and maids, and, and learned really how to become an ambassador of Jesus Christ. That's what Stephen Ministry is. And I met some of the most wonderful people. To go through a class with with other folks and learn their stories is just amazing. Some of the friendships that we've developed are, are really, really special to me. But my story's not over. God has more for us to do here at Desert Spring. Honor's a word that doesn't get used much anymore. It's kind of an old-fashioned word, but I'm kind of an old-fashioned guy. Being a Stephen minister and, and being involved with that, as a Stephen minister, walking with someone in crisis is an uncommon honor. To be invited into the most intimate details of their life and share with them in that crisis is being Christ to them. So it's an honor for me to be a Stephen minister. So what's your story? What more is God asking you to do? Be open to the questions. The scripture today about putting on the armor of God is one of my favorites from Ephesians chapter 6. Some people ask me, why do you greet everybody on Sunday mornings? I like to, especially this is my service. I like the 8 o'clock service. And here's why. I figure that at at some point, someday, someone's going to really need that welcoming smile, that handshake, and that really will make their day. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I keep doing it. One other story I'll share with you before I close. Pastor David asks the uh, Stephen ministers to come to the front during the closing hymn for people to come forward and pray. And I know that can be intimidating to come down in front. It's like, well, I don't want anybody to know. I need somebody to pray with me. So we we stand down here, and, and one day, a couple months ago, I'm standing here, and something inside me said, move. So I moved. And I prayed with four or five people during that closing hymn. I walked, and I'm going to continue to do that. I don't know what caused me to move. I mentioned it to Pastor David a couple of weeks ago, and I said, could that have been the Holy Spirit kind of moving me? He said, yeah, it could have been. I said, well, do you mind if I keep doing it? And he said, there's no way I'm getting between you and the Holy Spirit, so keep doing that. (laughs) So if you see me come toward you during the closing hymn, I just want to say a prayer. In 1 Thessalonians Paul wrote be thankful in all circumstances for of such is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. My faith journey's been shaped by a lot of people some of whom are in this room today so thank you. And in closing I'll say I'm a I'm an old Eagles fan but not Philadelphia. It's the band. One of my favorite songs is by Don Henley, who was Eagle's drummer. and It was on a solo album he did, it's called My Thanksgiving. I won't sing it, but a few of the words are this. I've got great expectations, I've got family and friends, I've got satisfying work and a back that bends for every breath, for every day I'm living. This is my thanksgiving. So what's your story? I'm just an average guy with an average story. But God's been working in my life, and I know God is working in your life. With whom could you share your story? What's your story going to be? Let your life speak. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Amen.